Hi, and welcome to Pimped, OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel at your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. I'm Dr. Jennifer Dory, a third-year resident at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and founder of Pimped, a medical flashcard app. Welcome back. Today, we're going to be talking about intrapartum and postpartum fevers. So first, let's start with people who are still pregnant. So women who are still pregnant, who are developing a fever, which in OBGYN, as is with most specialties, we will cl- classify as a temperature greater than 38.0 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, there's a lot of different reasons that people who are pregnant and either in early labor, active labor, or um, the second stage, so pushing, um, would develop a fever. The first reason people will develop a fever is going to be a transient fever or what's called an epidural fever. So it's not uncommon that right after you get an uh, epidural, you can have several things happen. You have, do you often develop a transient hypotension? So it, it vasodilates all their peripheral um vasculature, they get hypotension, they get a little bit tachycardic, and then they can often develop a little bit of a fever. It's a transient fever, not typically very high, um, but it may well show up now and then. Um, The other things that can cause fevers intrapartum, a DVT or a PE. So remember, pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. Um, They are prone to developing clots. And especially in labor, if they have an epidural or something, they're immobilized. So they're not moving at all. Um, And it, it does become easy to develop a DVT or a PE. Um, also a UTI. Think about those who get an epidural early and then end up with a long, prolonged indwelling Foley catheter. Um, UTIs are easy to come by. And the mo- the last one and the one we're going to spend most of today talking about is an intraamniotic infection. So what used to be called chorioamnionitis, now known as triple I, intrapartum intraamniotic infection, or um, IAI, which is intraamniotic infection. All right, so to diagnose an intraamniotic infection, infection in the fluid around baby within the uterus, um, we're going to use a couple different diagnostic criteria because there's different diagnostic criteria that are being used in different parts of the country and in different institutions um, around the country. So one of the most common um, press releases that covers this is the ACOG um, practice bulletin, which is what we'll be talking primarily about today. This goes by, has a little bit stricter criteria than the older guidelines did. So either one temperature greater than 39.0 degrees Celsius um, or one temp between 38 and 39 degrees Celsius plus one or more risk factors. And we'll talk about those risk factors. And then, or two temperatures greater than 38, more than 30 minutes apart. The goal of this sort of stricter criteria than just one temperature above 100.4 is that we're trying to control for those other factors, that epidural fever, which is transient, or other transient elevations in um, temperature related to things like activity. So uh, somebody who's pushing and covered in a lot of blankets might have a transient temp of 100.4, but say we take off all those blankets, they cool down. They're probably no longer, if they're no longer um, hyperthermic, they're probably no longer or don't actually have chorioamnionitis or triple I. So we want them to have to prove to us essentially in a slightly more strict way that they actually have an infection that needs to be treated. So if you have one temp greater than 39, so that's 
good enough. That's high enough that we need to treat you one way or the other. If you have this one temperature between 38 and 39 and one or more risk factors, risk factors are going to um, include um, maternal or fetal tachycardia. So oftentimes is the, if the fetus is swimming in an infection, they are going to develop tachycardia. So their, ta- their um, heart rate is going to be above 160. And that's their baseline heart rate, not an acceleration, um, not one of the, not when their heart rate um, is transiently elevated due to activity, but their baseline heart rate above 160. Um, also, if mom has a white count above 15,000, or if mom is also tachycardic above 100, um, and really we want it above about 110 because up to about 106 can be normal in later term pregnancy. All right. So if you meet those um, criteria, what are we going to treat you with? And this is a very standard regimen. Um, you're going to hear us talk about there's three primary antibiotics that we use for all of these peripartum fevers. Um, so if you are intrapartum, I want to make sure you're covered in case it's that group B strep um, that we talked about treating you for in the earlier podcast about labor and delivery. So what if it's a group B strep um, chorioamnionitis? Most of the chorioamnionitis or the triple I is going to be polymicrobial. So we got to cover for a lot of stuff, but I definitely want to make sure I cover that group Groupie strep. Groupie strep is very well covered by penicillins, including ampicillin. So I'm going to use ampicillin for that. Now I need to cover for the rest of what could be polymicrobial for my genitourinary um, different microbes that could have, you know, tracked up and created this infection. So I'm going to add gentamicin to that. So I'm going to do ampicillin and gentamicin. These are both IV antibiotics, and we are going to continue those until the patient delivers. The other things we're going to do is we want to bring down her temperature um, so that mom and baby both are no longer tachycardic, hopefully. So we're going to give her Tylenol. Um, you can do PO if they're nauseous or throwing up, which often happens in tripartum. We can give them um, either IV or rectal Tylenol as well. We're also going to give her a little bit of an IV fluid bolus. If she or baby is tachycardic, an IV fluid bolus can help bring down um, that tachycardia. And sometimes the temperatures will get really high. You'll get up to, you know, 39.5, 103 degrees Fahrenheit. And mom and baby are really tacky. They're really hyperthermic. We got to bring that down before we cause um, any permanent issues. So we can use things like a cooling blanket or ice packs to the axilla and groin, trying to cool down the blood supply at some of its largest um, branch points that are also the most superficial. Um, So we'll put them on a cooling blanket sometimes with a rectal um, thermometer if needed, if their temp is persistently super elevated. Um, Just so in case you hear these words, IV Tylenol on the wards is often called Ophirmev. Um, It's just the brand name, but all it is is a gram of, of Tylenol that goes through the IV. All right, so what if somebody is penicillin allergic and we need to give them this Ampgent combo? So if it's a mild penicillin allergy or um, an unknown allergy but not concerning for the severe anaphylactic reaction, um, we'll switch it to Ansef and gentamicin. If they have a true severe penicillin allergy, they have documented um, anaphylaxis or um, – facial angioedema, um, things like that, we'll we'll give them Gent and Clinda or Gent and Vancomycin, depending um, on what we need coverage for. Um, If they have a vaginal delivery, all right, so now we've treated them up through their delivery. If they have a vaginal delivery, there is no evidence that continued antibiotics postpartum provide any benefit. So if you think about it, they had chorioamnionitis or triple I, they had this infection in the amniotic fluid around the baby. We've 
remove that infection. You know, we've taken away the source of infection and in theory removed the barrier to it, which was the amnion and the chorion. So we've removed all of that. We've drained the abscess, if you will. So they should be fine. They really shouldn't require any additional antibiotics. Um, some places will still do an, one additional dose postpartum, but again, there's no evidence that continued antibiotics postpartum will provide any benefit. If you go to a C-section, however, if we go to a C-section, you know, normally we would do a dose of ANCEF before a C-section just to prevent um, a surgical site infection. Um, we've already given them, we're giving them ampingent. What we're going to add to it is actually a clindamycin. So they're going to end up getting what we call GAC or Gent Amp Clinda. And this is a common triple antibiotic regimen that you will hear us talk about. Um, it's used not infrequently in OBGYN in different combinations of this. As I've said, we use Amp and Gent for intrapartum infections. We'll talk about Gent and, Gent and Clinda in a second, um, isolated. And then so if you have a triple I or an infection before a C-section and a C-section, you're going to get Gent, Amp, and Clinda. So the difference between a section and a vaginal delivery is that there is some evidence that continuing for at least one dose postpartum after a section does decrease the rate of um, post-op infection. So at least one additional dose of antibiotics postpartum. And then there isn't clear evidence to say only one dose versus multiple doses. So the advice after that is really clinical judgment on when to discontinue. Um, some places will just do one dose postpartum. Others will do 24 hours afebrile. Um, others will just have a strict 24 hours postpartum protocol. It's going to vary depending on where you're um, where you're at. But if somebody asks you, do you continue, continue postpartum? You say only if you get a C-section. Do you continue these antibiotics postpartum? Um, and they may correct you and say for a vaginal delivery, we still do, but you were not incorrect by saying you definitely do for a C-section. All right. So that is triple I, also known as chorioamnionitis. Also, you'll see referenced as IAI, which is that intraamniotic infection. A um, lot of different names meaning the same darn thing. All right. So now let's talk about postpartum. So somebody went through their entire labor and delivery course. They were afebrile. Everything went well. No trouble. On post-op day or postpartum day one, you go to round on this patient that you helped deliver. You go to see her. <clears throat> she looks a little bit diaphoretic, but otherwise okay. Um, she feels a little bit warm to the touch when you're palpating her fundus. And when you press her fundus, she is abnormally tender. So she has what we call fundal tenderness. So everybody's going to be a little bit, they're going to make that little bit of a squint face like, oh, that didn't feel great when you pressed on their fundus because that was a muscle that they just used really hard the day before. Um, and, you know, it's like going to the gym really hard and being sore the next day. It's going to be a little sore. So if you press on it, they're not going to like it. But some people are going to push your hand away and kind of jump. And that is more true clinical fundal tenderness. So if they have fundal tenderness and they appear sick, they appear febrile, you want to get somebody to take a temp. If they are febrile, that's going to be a diagnosis of postpartum endomyometritis. We treat endomyometritis with Gent and Clinda. So two of those same antibiotics we were using before. Um, and we usually treat endomyometritis for 24 hours afebrile. Um, and this is a clinical diagnosis. You need um, a attempt really to diagnose it, but you don't need, um, we don't get cultures, they don't tend to help. Um, and we don't need anything besides the temp and then typically fundal tenderness or in absence of another um, cause of a fever. 
other causes of fever. This is something you will get asked on the ward. So um, a fair number of times during the day, usually the intern will be carrying the pager. Somebody will call from postpartum. Somebody who's doing really well on morning rounds. Oops, she just spiked a temp to 100.6. Doc, what do you want me to do? The intern says, hey, let's go take a look at this patient together. And on the walk over there, you say, they'll often ask you, what are the different things I'm thinking about? What am I worried about in a postpartum patient with a fever? And this is true if they had a C-section or a vaginal delivery. There's a whole bunch of things that can go for both. And the easiest way to remember this is a lot of them we can make, either they naturally do or we can make them, start with W. So it's all the Ws. So we think of wind, womb, water, wound, walking, weaning, and wonder drugs. So we'll go through these one by one. So wind, so I'm thinking about their lungs. So could they have a pneumonia? Did they get intubated for their section? Could they just have atelectasis? Um, could they have a URI? Is it wintertime? It's flu season. And a lot of people have colds and URIs and they're getting... Um, just a little superficially um, febrile from that. Um, so wind, womb, next is the endometritis, the endomyometritis that we talked about. So do they have fundal tenderness? Did she have a prolonged labor? Did she have prolonged rupture of membranes? Does she have a reason or a risk factor for her to have endomyometritis? Did somebody have to go in there and manually remove her placenta? That's a risk factor for endomyometritis. Um, did she have retained products or retained portion of the placenta or membranes? That would be an, a risk factor for endomyometritis. So all these things I'm thinking about on the walk over there. Um, the next one is wound. Could she have a superficial wound infection? Was it a C-section? If it was a C-section, um, I'm worried about cellulitis. If it was a vaginal delivery, could she have an infection along her um, perineal laceration? Um, if it is a cellulitis, when I go, I'm thinking about, all right, is this bad enough that her um, wound is actually opening? If it's opening, is there any chance there's an abscess in there? Um, if there is if there's an opening and a communication into um, the skin, I might want to need um, to probe the fascia. I want to make sure that fascia is intact because um, an abscess or an infection is a great reason that for that fascia to open up a little bit. And if an infection has the ability to get into that intra-abdominal cavity, so much worse. So we need to make sure that fascia is intact. If not, they have to go back to the OR typically for a washout and a repair. All right. So wind, womb, wound. We talked about all three of those. Water is next. So water is peeing. So a UTI or pylo. So if they have any, I always ask about complaints about dysuria, burning frequency, um, suprapubic pain, any of those things, I want to get a UA. Even if they don't have any of those symptoms, but they had a prolonged Foley or multiple straight casts during the process, I want to get a UA and make sure it's not a UTI. That's an easy thing to fix and a great reason for a fever. All right, so wind, womb, water, um, walking is next. So DVT and PE. So walking because they're not walking really and because they're postpartum and were recently pregnant, a DVT or PE can give you a low-grade fever. So I want to check and make sure that they don't have any calf tenderness. If they don't have calf tenderness, I want to make sure I'm listening to their lungs as part of, part of both their wind exam and an evaluation for potentially a PE. Are they tachycardic? Are they having difficulty breathing? Do they have any pleuritic chest pain? Any of these things that could clue me into a DVT or a PE. All right, wind, womb, wound, water, walking. Next thing is weaning. So um, weaning, referencing breastfeeding. So this includes engorgement and mastitis. If it's within just a couple days, a day or two of delivery, most common reason would be engorgement, meaning this is when their milk is coming in. You can have a transient low-grade temp from this engorgement or the um, coming down of milk if it's getting it all backed up. So more often happens in women who are not breastfeeding um, or whose babies are in the ICN, the NICU, and they are breastfeeding pumping. 
and they're not doing it as frequently as they should be as their milk comes in, they can get this transient febrile response to um, the swelling and over-inflammation of um, the breast. Um, if you're further out than two to three days, you can slowly develop a mastitis, which is actually a true infection in one of the breast ducts. This typically looks like a pizza slice coming, the um, peak of the slice being at the nipple, coming out to the crust, being sort of out around the um, outside border of the breast. And it's a wedge-shaped um, area of redness, induration, pain, um, and uh, is a, you know, a single area of infection rather than a disseminated infection. So this could be two things. You can get just a clogged duct, which can look similar, not typically as painful or um, as hot. And then you can also get a mastitis. If it's just a clogged duct, it doesn't look quite painful, like quite red enough, or they don't actually have a fever, um, more likely a clogged duct than mastitis. They can do warm compresses, breast pump, just sort of the goal is to really express, express, express to remove the clog and get the duct flowing again. If it's mastitis, they're going to need antibiotics. Um, and it's a weird antibiotic that we use for mastitis. Expect to be asked this on the wards because if you see somebody with mastitis, it's a weird question because you don't see this antibiotic, I don't think, anywhere else. Um, but for mastitis, we give dicloxacillin. So it's in a penicillin family. It's related, but you really won't see it anywhere else. It has good expression in the breast milk, so it's going to get into those um, breast lobules, and it's going to treat the infection, and it's safe in breastfeeding. So dicloxacillin, if you're asked what to give for mastitis, most commonly is dicloxacillin. All right, the last thing is wonder drugs. So you're thinking about have they gotten any drugs recently that have been um, that are known to give a transient febrile response? The most common one that we use on labor and delivery is going to be mesoprostol. Mesoprostol. Um, is used usually for postpartum hemorrhage or uterine atony without hemorrhage. Uh, it clamps down the uterus. It causes that smooth muscle contraction, but it also causes can cause a transient um, mild hyperthermia. So it can cause a little bit of a transient fever. Um, so in the absence of any other clinical signs of infection, no fundal tenderness, no signs of UTI, no you know clear lung sounds, no signs of DVT, any of those things. Sometimes we'll you know go back and I'll look and did they get mesoprostol? Do they have a reason for one of these transient and um, elevations in in temperature without a true infection? If they don't have any of these um, obvious causes, you want to obviously get the workup we talked about. You want to get a UA. Um, if you have any concerns about their breath sounds or a potential pneumonia, you're getting a chest X-ray. Um, a change any concerns about a wound infection. You might be co collecting a wound culture, but typically you only collect one if you really think there is an infection. Um, and if not, you can think about maybe it's just engorgement. We should watch it for a little while versus sometimes you'll hear us say, let's just treat empirically for endomyometritis um, because it's the most common source of infection postpartum, especially in somebody who has risk factors, like we said. So risk factors for postpartum endomyometritis are going to be prolonged rupture of membranes or just prolonged labor, um, <clears throat> GBS positivity in labor, um, any type of uh, instrumentation of the uterus. So needing to use a banjo curette to remove a piece of the placenta from the uterus, needing to use my hand to manually remove the placenta, using my hand to do a sweep of the uterus because there were some membranes that were retained. Um, having some retained uh, membranes or something that then came out later, you know that then there was something in the uterus for a while. All of those things would be risk factors for postpartum myometritis. And that's really going to be the most common thing you hear and talk about. But don't be surprised if 
you get asked walking to see somebody with a fever, what are the most common reasons for postpartum fever and what are you worried about? And you can say wind, wound, womb. (laughs) I can't, I can't say both of those. Wound and womb, water, walking, weaning, and wonder drugs are those most common causes. All right. So quick review, intrapartum fevers. I want at least one temperature greater than 39 degrees Celsius or two temps between 38 and 39, more than 30 minutes apart, or one temp above 38 plus one or more of those other risk factors. Um, or signs or symptoms of an infection to diagnose you with what is still sometimes called chorioamnionitis or triple I. If you do, we're going to treat you with amp and gent most commonly, and we're going to try to bring down your temperature and bring down your um, heart rate if we need to, yours and babies. Um, If you get a C-section, we're going to add clindamycin to the amp and gent, and we're going to continue it postpartum. If you have a vaginal delivery, we're not going to continue it postpartum. If you were fine intrapartum and now you develop a fever postpartum, we're going to think about all the different reasons for infection, wind, womb, wound, water, walking, weaning, and wonder drugs. And if all else fails, we'll consider treating presumptively for empiric treatment for endomyometritis. That's the most common. And we're going to treat that with Gent and Clinda. All right. So that's it for today. Check us out on Facebook and download the app if you haven't already. Pimped a medical flashcard app. Um, Let us know in the comments or on our app at pimpedapp.com if you guys have any suggestions for what you want to hear next. More podcasts. We're in the process of trying to get a couple more Um, podcast up and running, the emergency medicine and other things. So let us know if you would like to hear those so we can spur on our other hosts. All right. Thanks so much. Bye guys. Bye.